I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today with Michael Kiefel, uh, who's the uh, head of Mandala, which is a, well, how would you describe it? It's a conscious innovation consultancy. That's exactly how I would describe it, actually. <laughs> we, need some footnotes. we need some footnotes yeah. on so that. So it's, yeah, the, the idea that we work on projects that bridge purpose and profit, um, and particularly in Japan, uh, which I run Mandala in Japan and, and Asia uh, region, yeah, a lot of it is, is, is focused, has a technology focus on it. As well, more so than other places. And we, we shouldn't be deceived by your uh, your accent because you actually you've been here a long time. You speak perfect Japanese. Uh, What's my accent? Actually? Well, you have a very kind of uh, international <coughs> accent. But do I? Well, yeah, oh, you wow. do. <laughs> but you've definitely you're definitely native here. <laughs> so how does someone from Ohio end up uh, running a innovation consultancy in Japan? Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of perfect timing actually. So basically, when I came in two thousand four. Uh, there was such a huge desire for information from Japan. Um, everyone wanted to know what was going on here, especially with mobile and mobile technology and technology in general, but there was really no information about the market available in English at all, and especially not on the internet. So we had started a, uh, a blog that, that had become quite popular. Uh, which I think is how you originally yeah, knew about I, us I was a, 10 I was a years big reader of the Sea Scout blog. And yeah. I think you're being modest when you say quite popular. Didn't you say it was, it was the, in the 20,000s most popular blog in the world? I think it was in the 20,000 most popular websites, websites? at one, at wow. one point. But that was 2006, something like that. I mean, I think maybe there are 20,001 <laughs> websites then. So, uh, but yeah, it was it was quite popular. And we had, we had a big following. And... You know, there was such a, a, a huge desire for information from here, and we were providing even just a small amount of what was available. But at that time, most of our work was, most of our research was going into client reports. Right. At that time, especially uh, BMW, and uh, I think one of the biggest clients we had then was Siemens Mobile. Really? Uh, which had a, a kind of pretty cool R&D lab called uh, Product Visionaries. And so we, we provided a lot of information for, for Product Visionaries. Before they were bought by, uh, by the Chinese. And it was a really interesting time because I know around that time when I was a big reader of your blog and I used to come to Tokyo all the time, this was like stepping into the future. Right. And, and I mean, long before the iPhone, uh, the feature phones here and the content ecosystems and retail, uh, there was something extraordinary about Japan. Uh, but it's just interesting, you know, coming back here now and uh, I think the last time I here was here was about 2007, 2008. The world's really shifted, hasn't it? I mean, do yeah. you still think the world looks to Japan for tomorrow? I, I think I think in a lot of different ways, maybe not in technology as much, uh, but socially, there's there's a lot of that. I mean, technology in terms of actual the hardware side of things, uh, yes, they, they do, and in processes and and engineering skills, Japan, you know, has the best in the world yeah. in, that, in that case. Uh, how to bring products to market. It's never been anything that Japan's been particularly good at anyway, unless it's the, the Japanese market, and even then sometimes. Uh, yeah. But, uh, so I think, I think a lot of the shifts 
that have happened here have been much more about uh, taste and kind of niche niche cultures and, and what what away from maybe mass market uh, world that I guess Japan used to used to live in. Yeah, no, you, we, we went on a bit of a retail tour today and I, I think you made an interesting comment when you said that in many ways China is going through the process that Japan did in terms of their consumers becoming more sophisticated and, and waste. To... Well, they're in the kind of money wasting uh, right. part of it now, I guess, yeah. and learning what you like and what you don't like and uh, and that will all sort of sort itself out. So that's when, when, when I... When I have when I hear criticisms about even just like Asian markets in general that all oh, people are, you know, buying stuff and all they care about is brands and showing off and things, but that's sort of kind of the natural process that that an economy goes through when it suddenly has lots of wealth in there. You can't expect everyone to suddenly, you know, be uh, be like the most sophisticated consumer. You know, right? It's. Uh, it's a process. It's social change. You know, 2007, 2008 was a real, it felt like when I was here, it was a real turning point for Japan. Um, it was, uh, many of the phones in use were still feature phones or yeah. quite a local technology, but that was also the point where the iPhone entered Japan. And yeah. uh, it kind of felt that things diverged a little. Um, I mean, what, what's your sense when you, when you look at the market? Well, it's, it's so funny to think that in 2004 and five, when we were first doing the blog, that that was somehow so much further ahead of the iPhone when it's literally like two years. Yeah. <laughs> right? But you're right. Like Japan was another planet then, you know. Yeah. I mean, everything, things that we're only looking at now, which is like, you know, ordering in, you know, McDonald's and yeah. uh, mobile payments. It was all here. Yeah, it was, it was all, it was all here and it was the future. And, and, and I mean, to, to be fair, the iPhone came out. It took a few years for things to, to, to settle down, but I think it was pretty obvious from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and I have to say, I was I was also a, a bit of a naysayer uh, when it came to the iPhone, um, and there were a lot of kind of stupid criticisms that I uh, take full responsibility for. Uh, some of them, were even the most basic thing, which is like, uh, not one of my criticisms, I might add, but uh, that the iPhone won't be successful because there isn't the little hole that you can hang a strap from in the case, right? So Japanese people just have to have that strap. I didn't say that, but I was much more along the lines of the the actual experience, uh, the user experience, was so different that you know your average Japanese teenager could type an email like with their hand in their pocket yeah. uh, on the keyboard, and you can't really do that with an iPhone, or at least not not then. Probably maybe you could voice dictate it now, but. Uh, but there were all these little reasons why like, people didn't think the iPhone would work here. Uh, but the evolutionary path of phones in Japan was quite unusual. Uh, you know, people often talk about the birthplace being with pages and numbers, uh, people sending coded messages. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, that, I, I think even, well, first of all, it's the most important thing to understand about mobile here is that, say, take your average person in their 30s now, I mean, even their 40s, their first email address was on their phone so their and their first internet access in many cases was through their phone through iMode or yeah basically through the mobile internet so the internet especially at that point in time in 2005 six the internet was basically through your phone screen like that that that's what the internet basically was and so there 
there wasn't uh, it's not like in, in the West especially where we migrated from you know desktop to laptop to uh, to iPhone to a tablet and then back again uh, but it was basically phone and then people use computers for different things but essentially people are using their phones for this kind of communication and a lot of that came from like you said the pager uh, pager culture or pocket bells is what, what they were pocket to better so that you could communicate uh, with one another using you know, coded messages using using numbers you know, essentially to each other and, but this and, was something that happened organically it wasn't like the carriers actually yeah I, I, to, a, to be fair I wasn't here even when that happened like my wife for example was in high school I guess when uh, and she had a pager I guess all her friends had pagers and they were sending each other these messages which again I just I just find that world hard to imagine I wasn't here I wasn't here to see it but even so like they once phones were available they immediately just moved to that and they had phones with color screens and cameras in 2001 yeah something like that I I had a friend in college who had uh, exchange Japanese exchange student who came with this like crazy amazing phone in like 2000 yeah one or two something like that and uh, she was just laughing at everything that we had <laughs> and I, I couldn't even figure out I was like oh my phone's really cool and apparently it wasn't so, well you know yeah. so much of the I guess the iPhone uh, iTunes ecosystem was in a sense interpreted from what NTT Docomo built yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah well I mean Docomo told the manufacturers what to make you know the phones you know they essentially dictated what what phones were going to be made and features and things like that and that's basically it's very similar to Apple's model except Apple controls the whole thing like they are the manufacturer and the software provider and they're not the they're not the carrier but uh, that's kind of the dumb business to be in maybe yeah right so uh, so the carriers in Japan were you know the phones were branded with the carrier's name and they're locked to to the carrier and all that stuff, right? So, and eventually, like we were talking about earlier, it kind of became banks in a way. You know, Docomo ID and AU has its bank. And, and are these banking services integrated with the? Uh, are they standalone banks, or are they actually integrated into their core applications? And well, so yeah, it's part of it's it's a lot of it. It started with the feature on the feature phone side. They have much more control over that, right? So, like Docomo ID uses their like Osaifu Keita like their uh, uh, what do you call it like the, the kind of like the, the contactless payment system and things like that so you get in the taxi for example you can use Docomo ID and just pay with your phone right? and that's all sort of integrated as a system I think a lot of people are wondering now uh, whether Apple is going to do the same thing in payments that they did with devices whether they'll they'll take I guess what's been learnt in Japan and mm-hmm. kind of make it more palatable for the rest of the world so you know when you look at Japan's history, they've they've been one of the earliest movers worldwide with developing alternate forms of cash-based payment. Mm. I guess born out of the transport system. Yeah, yeah. I mean Suica and uh, like other cards that use this, like use the Fedica chip, which is like the, the RFID chip inside of the card. Uh, I mean they they started in the early two thousands basically, and then finally over a few years of education uh, it was all finally linked together and there was a, a, such a massive 
like mind shift in the public who you know they used to they could either have a monthly pass that they used like for their ticket every day right uh, to get on the trains or they would have to buy an individual like stand in line you buy an individual ticket to this place and that was crazy I mean they used to have to stand in line to buy these tickets and then suddenly you were able to just touch your, you know charge this card with cash and touch and go through the gate but they didn't just debut it like that right it started really slowly um, start really just starting with the gates right so it's an easy mind switch for people and that first you had to buy this ticket and now all you have to do is put money on this card and charge and touch it and go through oh okay that just you just solved like all tons of problems actually with people waiting in lines and things like that and then you could use it like in a vending machine you could buy a drink with it and then you could use it in the convenience store and then you know suddenly you're able to use it in all these different places and lots of different brands have the same kinds of card and you know cash but it's cash right and it's the same as cash if you lose the card your money's gone mm. unless the card is a there's different ways to attach the card to you in particular but basically the money's gone do you see it though as a bit of a missed opportunity? Because I mean, Japan at that point could have really dominated the world with this technology. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you could insert that phrase for a lot of different technologies right? that have come from Japan. The, yeah, that have come from Japan, where you say like Japan could have dominated the world with this technology. Like, which one? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but I think it, again the problem was you know how to bring it to market, how to make deals globally, understanding. Uh, what people want in uh, in different markets, like they're not Japanese people, so uh, desires are different. I mean, the whole IMO debacle in Europe is is like that's a whole another podcast, basically. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know that they really saw that payments would really be where it is now. I mean, payments is like the big the big thing now yeah right how do people pay for stuff you know when you think about the concept of money it's, it's as much an anthropological construct uh, as it is a technological or economic one mm. and uh, you, what 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 do you think about when you think about the future of payments and the way we interact I mean how much of that culture do you think really shapes the form of these technologies and how they're used well I think the the main thing for Suica and stuff here is that Japan's a cash-based society, so it had to reflect what people already rely on, which is cash, right? And they trust cash. Why is and, that? Where does that come from? Uh, there's like a, I don't want to use this kind of stereotypical like shame word, but I mean there is a bit of like kind of shame, I guess, in credit and having debt. You, know, you don't want to have debt. Uh, you know, people generally, well, ideally not publicly anyway, don't like have like student debt and things like that. I mean, it's, it's hard to get loans in a lot of those cases. Um, and so there's an aversion to, to credit. Uh, I think a bit of that's changing, but even credit here in its form now is basically like a monthly payment card. Like you don't really defer payments the same way you do in the US where you get you charge up 2000 bucks and then you pay like the $15 minimum and then just keep racking up on that 18% APR right uh, it's probably higher than that now uh, but uh, there's it basically just pays off your balance directly from your bank account if you own 
So you don't even pay anything. Anyway, like, so the, the money to fund that's coming from the merchants, from the, the processing fees, right? So there's that, Suica reflected that. If there was a big credit culture, they probably just would have gone straight to contactless credit and like cut the, cut the crap, which is basically what Apple pays, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we spent a bit of time looking at some, some quite interesting retail concepts today. Uh, I, I particularly like the interactive wall uh, at Parco. Mm. Can you talk a bit about that and, and, and I guess, you know, I guess what that represents? Yeah, I think the, the, the nice thing about the wall, I'm assuming you'll put pictures up on your website and things like that, uh, that it's, it shifts the perspective, I guess, of how someone, inca- someone enters a department store and how they, how they shop for things. So normally, if you go into a department store, especially here, which is kind of like a big building with all these tiny little shops inside of it, Maybe you know what brand you like, but you don't uh, know much about the other ones. And so if you're trying to find out where that brand is, you look at the, you know, the shop directory, there's a hundred shops on there and you find, okay, mine's on the fourth floor and you go up there. Where the wall, what they did was they have every shop in the building upload images, like nice images of the products that they carry and, you know, in season and keep it updated and everything and information, price and everything. And the wall just shows the products. So when you see a product that you like, irrespective of brand, it helps you it helps you discover things that you like versus just going by a brand name, which I think is a really, like, I don't know how well it works actually in practice, but I like the that mindset. And I think that's an attractive mindset and probably on the right path uh, to, helping people navigate the world based on preferences rather than a brand name. For yeah, example. it was quite a subtle installation. Like I noticed they had, like, I had, they had tracking technology that it, it actually responded to you as you walked past it and it noticed yeah. where your hand was and put the icon where your hand was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, I think it wasn't, it's almost so subtle that nobody even uses yeah. it. Yeah. So I think that's. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a very politely Japanese yeah, a digital I, installation. Yeah, non intrusive. It doesn't. It makes very subtle noises. And I think those girls that came up and used it basically only did because we were playing with it. Right. Uh, they may not have even noticed it. They would have just thought it was normal digital signage. So, um, but I, I like that that change of perspective, and I think that. Uh, Again, I don't know how well it works, but yeah. I saw a little bit of like Amazon recommendations in there, sort of in a way. You know, despite e-commerce and all this stuff, uh, Japan is resolutely a retail-based culture. Yeah. There's so much investment going into these retail stores that are so niche. I mean, I was blown away when we went into Muji, that this whole floor dedicated to maker culture. and. Uh, uh, those notebooks that they had, <laughs> which was which was so like you know specific about keeping a diary or a journal about the different curries or ramen that you had. Not even not curries or ramen. Like that book is specifically for a curry, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, you exactly. have a separate notebook for curry, yeah, a separate, separate notebook for, for, for ramen. ramen. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. uh, and, and you know the first five pages dedicated with examples of how you should keep that journal. You know, with polar area graphs. And and <laughs> and the beautiful thing about it is that it it wasn't even pre-printed like that. They actually made the demonstration like by hand. Oh right, right, right. Like it was, it didn't even come like that. It was actually made in the store. Yeah. To to look real, like the way that you would have it, the way that it should look, and probably people would just kind of copy that, that concept one to like copy that so way that, of doing it one know, to one. And this is not so, just old people. I mean, this is yeah. young people doing this. I mean, how is such a 
digital, technologically sophisticated society is still so resolutely analog and craft-based? Yeah, I, I think it's, first of all, Japan's less technological than people think it is. Uh, you know, the image that you always get is basically the Shibuya crossing with all like the flashing signs and everything. Yeah. And people go back home to, you know, a house with an old computer and a fax machine. <laughs> and a sophisticated toilet. <laughs> and a sophisticated toilet, yeah. So the technology <laughs> where it counts. Uh, but uh, but Japan is, is more low-tech than people realize. They've been on mobile phones before everyone else. But I mean... That doesn't make them more high tech. I think that's the only reason. I think that's the main reason Japan actually got that reputation is because everyone had mobile phones before the rest of the world. But what else was it? Well, there's this thing yeah. on robotics. Uh, yeah, I mean. Although it's curious, so you know, because we went to we went to SoftBank and we checked yeah. out you know Pepper, this new yeah. robot they use. And I was amazed to discover it wasn't actually a Japanese robot at all. It's a French robot. It's a French robot. But I think the, the company was either invested in or acquired by SoftBank. Right. And so SoftBank would, you know, I think um, the SoftBank has the ability to, I guess, bring bring it to market. So to get retailers to uh, to adopt it in, in as like shop assistants and things like that, which I doubt that that company would have been able to do just as a robotics company, yes. right? So, uh, there's J kind Japan of a... Japan has this very unusual relationship with robots, though. Yeah. Uh, you know, going right back to Astro Boy and, you know, what the car manufacturers were building these, you know, very sophisticated... Yeah. and still are. And, and again, like, millions and millions of dollars put into these, yeah. into these robots. And, you know, when I, when I first came to, uh, when I first came to Tokyo, I, I remember coming out and thinking like, like where are like the robots and the moving sidewalks and uh, <laughs> like where's my like tell it where's my flying car but uh, you know like, there was wasn't really uh, a lot of that stuff and and even going to see like Ashimo for example Honda's robot which is just down the down the street there uh, you know it hasn't changed that much I mean maybe it has it's changed a lot more than I, I realized but like how many years does it take to bring a robot to market it's, it's like the, it's more of a branding exercise it, it, it'll be anything. curious in 20 years time when we look at what the evolutionary starting point for robots is uh, I think in Japan you'd have this idea that it starts from some conglomerate who builds the ultimate robot but it may be that the evolution starting point is a it'll be a know, kickstarter in, in, or, it's, or, 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 it's a, or it's a vacuum cleaner you know yeah, yeah. it's like the world's smartest robot started as an iRobot vacuum cleaner that kind of scaled up and hit emergence yeah I can I, I can I can see that like where you you know 20 years from now like you're you have your iRobot the home assistant yeah just scaled up it used to clean your floors and now it yeah. serves you dinner uh, does your taxes so it probably makes more sense Rather, rather than start with like the dream, which is build a humanoid robot, uh, build a vacuum and just make it, it better. It, <laughs> it is funny that the cultural reception, though, because you, you, in many places of the world, the whole debate is, are the robots going to take over our jobs? So yeah. they're perceived as this kind of, you know, this, this, this kind of almost like from the movie Metropolis, this kind of threat. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, people are not frightened that robots are going to take their jobs. They actually... In some sense, almost want to be robots. Like there's a kind of a true love. Of, yeah, people. I think people see robots as cute, and not as threatening. I think a lot of, yeah, it's a definitely a different perspective. On, I mean, the robots are also designed in a more cute, 
way, right? It's, it's not like, uh, like you don't think of the Terminator when you think of a robot, <laughs> like, or Skynet, like you think of, like puppet doll, the cute NEC robot, well, Astro Boy, yeah. or Astro Boy, or like yeah. something like that. Robots are cute, so yeah. yeah, it's a different different perspective on it. I don't think they're worried about them taking their jobs, but maybe they should be. <laughs> um, well, the, the last thing I think we had in common uh, before we met is that we, we both lost a little bit of money in Mount Gox. <laughs> oh, no, you're going to get me to talk about Mount Gox? I'm not gonna, I can't talk about Mount Gox. I don't Gox want to talk about Mount Gox too much. I mean, <laughs> what, 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 I, what I am interested in is why, why Japan? Like, why, why, why did it happen here? Why did cryptocurrencies gain such a, an early momentum here? In Japan? Yeah. yeah, so that's... I think everyone kind of wanted to know that. And I, I really just think it was circumstance. In that case, it was really just a coincidence. The thing is, law moves pretty slowly here. Regulations move pretty slowly. And so that's why they were able to stay alive as long as they were without, you know, the feds knocking down the front door. So it was just like a regulatory blind spot. Yeah, I mean, like we were talking about earlier, if, if there's like a rule against something, it's super clear and that's not allowed. But if something like falls in between or like outside of what's written like like literally on the paper then like it just kind of, kind of lingers there until this is very counterintuitive because you know i i guess i originally <laughs> thought that maybe uh cyber currencies uh took off here because this was such a progressive technological mobile driven place but but actually, they haven't taken off here like, well, and, and actually they, they were allowed to be used largely because it wasn't legally at least it wasn't real. illegal yeah like it it's it's not that it's it was legal it's just that it wasn't illegal but i think japan is is more accepting of this kind of technology and rakuten as you've, you've seen now accepts bitcoin uh globally and that's a, a big deal although personally like accepting payment for bitcoin doesn't really mean a whole lot to me because yeah. like so what that doesn't get big people to buy more bitcoin or use bitcoin more it just like helps people who have a lot of bitcoin like have a place to spend it yeah. so uh if anything it makes the price go down um so japan is is I think friendlier than most places but and the difference like reg regulation wise is if it were in the US the feds just would have knocked down Gox's door and arrested them whether on just just on the suspicion that they were doing something bad and then just sort it out later where here they would have to know that something bad had happened because they only arrest you if they know they're gonna convict you so like 99% conviction rate so uh, you won't get arrested until they know for sure that you're gonna get <laughs> that you're gonna get put away, and that requires, you know, precedent and law and all that stuff. So, it was just, you know, Gox was here basically just sort of randomly because Mark, the CEO, really liked Japan. Uh, Roger Veer is also here, who's you know Bitcoin Jesus, one of the biggest, you know, Bitcoin promote proponents. Basically, just happened to be here. Uh, a lot of and the guy's name was uh, you know allegedly Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a Japanese name. So you know it's just a lot of weird circumstances. <laughs> so what, what do you think when we look into the future and, and we look back? We, what do you feel like we're going to say? Yep, it made sense that this came from Japan. So what what emerging behaviors that are, you think have been cooked up now in this kind of primordial soup? Of, of Tokyo well, I, I think a lot of the kind of craft craftsmanship and craft culture which Japan has always had, had 
and it had, so every every culture has had craftsmanship, but uh, but Japan has maintained over the years uh, through industrialization and all, and all of that, uh, which I think you know the U.S. in particular like lost also a lot of that and lost maybe appreciation for that in the consuming you know consumer goods mass-produced consumer goods and then are finally coming coming back to that and I think a lot of the people who have been proponents of of this kind of it's, just, it's a culture right it's not a, it's not a way of doing business as much as it is a kind of a culture and appreciation of these products grew up with you know looking at Japan and the types of products and presentation and packaging and everything that has come out of Japan and have been inspired by it um, like design product things like wow, there's so so many different brands things you can look at um, so people have been inspired by that however to get to your question where you know in 20 years will we say that came from Japan I actually don't think people will make the connection right like the people who who came up with it know where their influences were but I don't think the end consumer of that will realize that right you know, they're not going to say, "Oh yeah, like this is kind of culture that came from Japan." Like they won't even, they won't even realize it, right? So, like if 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 I remember when having having clients here in in mid two thousands, everyone was just shocked at how much people were staring at their phones. They were taking pictures of people staring at their phones on yeah. the train yeah. like you go on the train and go oh my god everybody's staring at their phone like this is so crazy like Japanese people are so weird because they're just staring at their phone yeah. it's like well okay well look around man <laughs> like, everybody's staring yeah. at their phone yeah. but are, are they but would you say that that culture of like staring at, staring at a screen like came from Japan no I mean like but it, it was originated it was, <laughs> but, but it was a forerunner if you put enough technologies in, in the right yeah. context together and you get that result yeah like yeah. that's what happens yeah uh, is that is that a particularly Japanese thing no I mean if you put an entertaining blinking light in someone's face like they're gonna stare at it so uh, yeah so that's that's kind of what happened um <laughs> Well, so. well, well, thank you, Michael. It's been really fun <laughs> hanging out today. So, <laughs> so thanks yeah, for thank the you. show. Cheers. Likewise. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash Between Worlds.